Rocket Yard Prize. I'm joined by my great friends, Ken O'Pala, who's Assistant Professor of International Development at Georgetown, and Dan Honig, who's Assistant Professor of International Development at John Hopkins SACE. Together, we're going to talk about norms, collective action, bureaucracy, and citizen state accountability. So today we're doing something different. Uh, instead of Ali's hosting, Dan and I are going to be hosting, and we're talking about three papers, uh, all of which you'll hear about shortly, and uh, we'll do them in turn. And uh, let me just add that we are honored to be joined here on Rocking Our Priors uh, by Alice Evans, who is a lecturer in the Social Science and oh, yeah, International Development right. at King's College London. Yeah. Alice, yes. welcome to Rocking Our Priors. It's a wonderful institution, um, and we are honored to be a small part of it. Thanks, Dan. Yes, and so Alice will get right into it. Yes, yes, yeah, Ken. So you wrote a fantastic paper uh, kind of uh, exploring uh, how norms of uh, shifts occur and how they can then be fountains of change uh, in important areas, uh, 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 well, you know, looking at global supply chains uh, uh, and specifically with a case study of uh, reforms in France. Yes. So I'd like to ask you kind of a big question. Yes. Uh, how do norm shifts occur uh, and, and how, do they, how do you think they might happen across cultures, uh, so within country but also uh, diffusion from one country to the next? Brilliant. Okay, that's a big question. How do norms change? Can I start actually by saying why norms don't change sometimes? Yes. And so if we observe the world around us and we see that everyone is wearing black, for example, then we infer from their behavior that everyone likes wearing black. So even though you and I, Ken, might actually kind of want to wear some flamboyant colours, maybe you and I would rather have a red T-shirt, perhaps, because everyone is wearing black, we expect... <laughs> I, I mean, I just want to say I also like wearing non-standard colours. I, I just want to, I just want our audience to also know that I... Let the record show that Dan is not boring. Yeah, Dan I mean... is flamboyant. I, I'm not, or I... Yes. You took this as a serious right. 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 Okay. Yes, so I'm listen, we're, we're observing the world, we're observing the world, everyone else is wearing black. So we infer from that behaviour that everyone else likes black and everyone else will support us, uh, champion us, praise <coughs> us if we're also wearing black. So we ourselves follow suit because, you know, we're concerned about other people's self-esteem. And so if we never see anyone wearing red, we might be reluctant um, because we might expect condemnation. And we see this happening in a number of domains. So we can see this happening with gender. So for example, if no, there are no women in biological sciences, for example, I might anticipate discrimination, so I don't step forward. But if there are, but so then again, we stop the norm change from happening because no women go into that. Or similarly, if we're talking about domestic workers, if domestic workers never see any successful mobilization, then they presume it's not likely to be successful. Same for precarious workers in the gig economy. If they never see any successful strikes, any successful activism, then they may be uh, despondent. And so for a number of domains, whether it's inequality, whether it's gender, whether it's sartorial ideas, people can get <laughs> trapped. People can get trapped in what I like to think of as a despondency trap. That mm. some of us might be sympathetic, we're privately sympathetic, but we're, we've got pluralistic ignorance. We don't realise that there are other people like us who are also privately sympathetic. I see. So, And so the same thing is happening in, in global supply chains. So the vast majority... So 
It's widely recognised in global supply chains that the people who make our clothes, to continue that example, are often paid poverty wages. They're working in very labour-oppressive countries where it's difficult to organise politically, incredibly hard to push for uh, higher wages. You know, in, in Bangladesh earlier this year, over about 10,000 workers went on strike, pushing for a higher wage other than the poverty wage. And the police returned <coughs> with tear gas and rubber bullets. Uh, and that's the same in Vietnam, for example. Independent trade unions have been outlawed for a long time. So in all these countries, there are labour repressive things. And that's partly... Uh and that's partly a response to our buyers' practices in that footloose buyers can travel the world looking for the lowest possible prices. And that incentivizes governments, that incentivizes Bangladeshi manufacturers and the Bangladeshi uh, government to keep their prices low, to repress organized labor. And when one country represses organized labor, others follow suit. So how can we change this? Well, one idea, one idealistic idea is if only our buyers, if only our companies were liable for human rights abuses and environmental degradation in their supply chains, then they would be so much more careful in where they're sourcing from. They wouldn't just look at who's got the lowest possible prices. They'd favour countries like Indonesia that allow independent trade units, for example. They wouldn't just dump uh, dump uh, effluent in the, the rivers of the Congo or Zambia, for example, like, like Lenkor has. So that would be the idea, to have some kind of legislation creating penalties. So that would be like any other crime. If you do a crime, then there are some financial, civil, criminal repercussions. But activists have not pushed for that because they don't see anything like that. There's no example like that where we have legislation creating accountability across global supply chains. So instead, activists across the world have been caught in this despondency trap. They've never seen this happen. So instead, they think, well, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to invest incredible, you know, result, you know, these are cash-strapped activists. They want to invest in winnable battles so they can show returns to their supporters. So instead, what they do is they just go along with private regulation, corporate codes of conduct, which everyone knows aren't right. So they're trapped. But as they continue to work on private regulation, multi-stakeholder agreements, that's all that other activists see. So if if they only see private regulation working, then that's all that's they think is possible. Yeah. So they're trapped in the despondency trap. So that's an example of why norms don't change. But Ken, you asked me, how do norms change? Now let me get to that. So what happened in uh, in the French case, for example? Yes, and that was oh, going to yeah. be my next question. Oh, right, so please sorry. dive right in. Okay. So in the Fr- so a couple of years ago, there was this. Uh, 2011, there was the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business. And this was a sort of international participatory uh, idea of business and human rights. And the idea that companies should identify and reduce risks of human rights abuses. And then the, and so sort of that gained international traction. And that sort of, you know, the member states joined, signed up to that. And so that gained sort of broad consensus. And then canny French activists thought, right, let's take this international consensus and turn it into national legislation. And so then my question was, well, why the hell did this happen in France rather than other countries? And so France, one, it was well positioned um, for various uh, national political culture reasons. And two, it got lucky. Could you say more about number one, Alice? So, you know, in your paper, yes. uh, one of the, you have this amazing quote from a, from a from a business leader, yes. right? Which translates to you know writing to uh, Emmanuel Macron, yes, right? Yes. Uh, the business leader says uh, about a draft bill, a draft yes, regulation. Yes, yeah. Dear Emmanuel, this text is just unreasonable. Yeah. Friendship. 
like in friendship. That's the whole meaning, right? So, look, you know, when we talk about lobbying in the U.S. and corporate stitch-ups, you know, I, I very much think there is too much corporate power in America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is still the case, I think, that the lobbyist makes an argument, that the business leader makes an argument other than... Please, come on, buddy. What are you talking about? You know, during, during President Hollande's tenure, during, so uh, Macron was a minister then, this was the business uh, association's number one concern. They yeah. vociferously opposed this bill. Because you, if you're a French company, you're worried about untold luck. I mean, so in every single country, it's not that activists are despondent, but also you've got self-interested reasons why you as a government would not in create this legislation. Because the minute you create legislation making your companies liable... You're Disadvantage. You're at yeah, a disadvantage because the German companies aren't, aren't liable yeah. to this. And this is a huge problem for any kind of global public good, whether it's the environment, whether it's transnational bribery. No government is going to want to make its own firms less competitive because then you've got worries about unemployment, economic growth. So for a whole host of reasons, not just despondent activists, but also national self-interest in the business culture, this doesn't happen. But in France, it happened. And so, mm. yeah, and that's I know you were just coming to why. Um, but, you know, in some ways, so you, you point out in the paper a bunch of reasons why we might think France is a likely case. Yes, yes. But it seems to me that a country where business is so close to government yes, yes. that they don't even need to bother making an argument <laughs> yeah, right. is, in fact, a less likely case. <laughs> yes, That's true. why I read the letter, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. And so how, how you know, where does the, the spark for the hope for reform come from? Right, right? exactly. Not just structural conditions, but yes. how, does it, how does it kind of come into the world? Right, yeah, so I, I mean, I, so I highlight a couple of structural conditions, and then I just think maybe these madly naive activists, because you've <laughs> got to be a little bit naive to go for it, And that's right? the lucky part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. there's a bit of luck as well. So one, France, uh, so one, there was this big trigger of Rana Plaza, the death of a thousand workers that was plastered across every newspaper across Europe. But what's really interesting in reading the newspapers comparing German, uh, Germany, the UK uh, and France is that in Britain, for example, even the centre-left papers like The Guardian would say, oh, you know, it's the poor Bangladeshis. In France, they were like, this is globalisation gone wild. These are the multinationals out of control. Because the way that people perceived that crisis was shaped by their pre-existing beliefs, yeah. their confirmation bias. So in France, if you look at Eurobarometer data, for example, it was 77% of people who are sceptical about globalisation. Compare that to 27% in the Netherlands or the UK. So you've got this pre-existing context of pretty sceptical about multinationals. So that that's how people interpret Rana Plaza. Added to that, you've got this history of dirigisme, that is this history of state intervention, the idea that the state should legislate and regulate for the common good, mm. rather than where you have sort of multi-stakeholder agreements in you know, the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, the UK. So partly because of those structural conditions, that uh, national political economy, and you happen to have a centre-left government, the activists are like, okay, all the stars are aligned. So they see Rana Plaza, they see the international agreements, they think of the national political culture, and they mobilise. And that's the point of this paper, that you can't, if you're trying to explain successful activism, you can't just look at, okay, what are the tactics, what are the campaign strategies that those activists did? You've got to think, well, why did they bother mobilising at all? When yeah. so many activists had responded, what gave them hope? Because they were mobilising relentlessly yeah. for like five years. So I'm trying to explain their relentless mobilisation. And then... Ken, they just got lucky. Macron went to work. Macron had not even met with the civil society while he was in office. Then he happened to go off to work on his presidential campaign. In moved a new minister who was much more supportive. It was all on the downfall. So they got lucky at the end. So there was a bit of political culture, a bit of luck. Then, boom, you get this French legislation. And then what's happened? Now, this is the really important part. 
is that then activists across Europe see this French legislation. And also in the meanwhile, there's also been this Swiss campaign. Over a hundred organizations uh, campaigning for similar legislation in Switzerland. And then activists in Germany are like, wow, it's actually possible to change things. And activists in Sweden, activists in the Netherlands, activists in Norway, activists in Sweden. So all across Europe, they're like, wow, we can actually do something different. They become emboldened and then they start collectively investing in these huge campaigns. So they are changing their own odds. Um, and that's part, and it's not shaped by any change in material conditions. Uh, it's not like there is a more sympathetic government. It's not yeah. like it's suddenly a huge public interest concern. But the activists have overcome the despondency trap. And I think that's an important lesson for any kind of global public goods issue. Yeah, so, I mean, <clears throat> you, you highlight the power of demonstration effects, right? Yes. Seeing this happen in France makes others think that it's possible. Yes. Um, uh, how did that diffusion happen? Was there, you know, a narrative making? So one of the, I've been reading a lot of uh, articles these days about, you know, the power of narrative, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if, if you're trying to change people's minds, sometimes it's not enough to just throw facts at them. Yeah, yeah. Right? You have to put it within a context and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, part of what you get at, which is know what structural conditions sort of constrain mm, their action, mm, mm. how they're likely to interpret the facts, mm. right? So French people see a fire very differently than, you know, Brits or, yes, or the Dutch. Yes. So knowing how French people might respond to, mm. to this information is key. Um, so, you know, how did that diffusion happen? Uh, were there, you know, cross-national activists uh, linking up or were the Swiss and the Germans just inspired by reading about the French? Yeah, so absolutely. So there's the ECCJ, European Coalition for Corporate Justice. Anyway, so there are a whole bunch of uh, transnational networks and also Twitter, sort of social media, email, listservs, those sorts of things enable activists to learn about what's happening in each, other, in each other's countries. But of course, these campaigns are always mediated by national context. And that's what, what's quite clever is that often Often, when the activists domesticate the idea, they play on their existing national <coughs> framings to, to gain traction. What so, does that mean, existing so, national framings? So, for example, in Finland, uh, and it's just this year in, uh, in Finland, there was a huge campaign over 80 organizations, and then the government announced that it would introduce this legislation. In Finland, they have a government website of all the things that Finland is number one at. They love being number one. No, truly. Like number one in media freedom, number one yeah. in life expectancy, number one, etc. And so then... Are they the number one in websites <laughs> about yeah. being number one? Number one. So then, and if so, do, does it just keep going? So, then, so the, 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 the slogan for this, for this uh, campaign is like number one starting line. So they really yeah. frame this as like, Finland should be the leader of corporate accountability. We should, we should be ahead on this. Like we don't want to be dragged behind. Mm. And then like similarly, it's embarrassing <coughs> for Sweden to be behind Finland if they're doing it. You know, yeah. the, the, the Scandies sure. brand themselves as very advanced on yeah. corporate accountability. We're, being, we're lagging behind on corporate social responsibility. Or, for example, the Swiss. You know, we Swiss like to play by the rules and our businesses should also play by the rules. Or we're the Swiss and we're the home of the Red Cross. We're humanitarian. And so, you know, building on national political cultures. Um, so, yeah, but yes, it's quite fun, really. Yeah, I mean, I can think of multiple ways mm. uh, in which this idea can, can travel into, you know, different areas. Yes. Right? Uh, because we often think of global solutions as essentially, uh, you know, we can, we can figure it out here in D.C. Mm, and mm, then have mm. a procrastinate approach everywhere. Mm. But what you're saying is that <clears throat> the local flavor is actually what, what's sure. needed, right? We need to know what's happening elsewhere, but... Ultimately, for it to succeed, it has to be adapted to its local reality. Yeah, and, but I think a really important part of this is to recognize that 
a lot of people conceive of global public goods as you've got a huge problem of free riders. And so we all need to come to a universally binding agreement, whether it's Paris or something like that. We've all got to agree to it uni- uh, uniformly, universally. Yeah. And that's so hard to do because you'll always have a free rider. But what I'm saying in this paper is actually you don't need to all agree at the, at the beginning. What you can just have is one country or two countries like France and Sweden, Switzerland that are a, a bit idiosyncratic, get very lucky, but then they inspire others and that causes these positive feedback loops. And, and the one reason why I'm optimistic about that is because exactly the same thing happened with transnational bribery after Watergate. So 1977, after the Watergate scandal, it was discovered this bribery, there were investigations into domestic bribery, but also transnational bribery. So huge public scandal, business had lost legitimacy, they got lucky with a sympathetic centre-left uh, administration under Jimmy Carter, they legislated uh, the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act, making it illegal to bribe a foreign public official. Now, that went against business interests because you're undermining their capacity to do deals abroad. You're making it yeah. hard, you're undermining their competitive advantage. <clears throat> but still, they legislated. Now, under the ni- in the 1980s, under Reagan, businesses lobbied to weaken that law. They lobbied because it was hurting their competitive advantage. It was weakened a little. In the 1990s, they shifted tack. Instead of trying to weaken their own law, they tried to impose it on others with the OECD anti-bribery convention, making everyone play by the same rules. And they tried to prosecute French companies, German companies, under the, the US law. And so as these, ex- and this, what this did, it, it shifted expectations that now people came to realize transnational bribery is more of a bad thing. Because in 1996, in France and Germany, you could get tax relief on paying a foreign bribe. Hmm. But expectations that were shifting through this OECD sort of voluntary process and then the UK was slipping down the ranking it was discovered there was this huge scandal that the UK was bribing Saudi arms uh, for arms deals and so under under that huge public scandal sympathetic-ish centre-left government under the uh, Labour Party the UK introduced the UK anti-bribery act again hurting domestic competitiveness but under these conditions you know under the these conditions of sympathetic government uh, uh, sympathetic government and public scandal and then after that we see Australia we see Germany Germany, we see France, other countries following suit. So in both these cases of transnational bribery and also global supply chains, we see governments contributing to global public goods without the need for a universally binding agreement at at one point in time. But instead, we have these positive feedback loops. So can that, in answer to how how norms change, these shifting in sort of expectations? Dan? Yeah, so uh, I, I, I I love the vision. You know, and I love the the idea that uh, that actors, that positive deviance mm. uh, moving ahead, mm. uh, will uh, either inspire others mm. or change the incentives of those people who have deviated mm. to the American mm. uh, corporate legislation yes, case, yes, yes. Uh, and and thus bring up the rest, mm. right? Mm. Uh, but surely there are scope conditions under mm. which this is going to work and isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, when is the race to the top? When is the hope for reform Mm-mm. the right way to move the system forward? Okay, so that, but it can be really hard to change in, in some context. So, for example, if you're in an authoritarian country and there are strong penalties of speaking out, then people will not speak out, right? And so then you're going to have this condition of pluralistic ignorance. Or, for example, and what is that? Else? Pluralist ignorance is when yeah, we're private, is when we're privately sympathetic, but we don't realise there's wider <coughs> support. Or, for example, I've done this comparative work on rural and urban areas. 
in rural areas, you might see one person who's a, a, a one woman who's a breadwinner, one woman who's going fishing, fishing. But you know, you sort of dismiss her as an outlier. It's only in cities where there's multiple disconfirming evidence, the sort of the density, the propinquity, the heterogeneity, that you see so much disconfirming evidence that you start to revise your beliefs and your expectations more quickly. So what you know, there can be this geographical variation. It can be mediated by the political context. It can also be mediated by macroeconomic conditions. So, for example, if people don't have an interest in reform. So I did research earlier on 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s Zambia. When copper prices were high, men could kind of provide for their families single-handedly. People did not have a strong self-interested reason to support female employment because men could kind of do it. They had good jobs in the copper mines or sort of uh, protected industries under import substitution industrialization, uh, state subsidies in urban areas. There's no strong self-interested reason to support female employment, and it's kind of embarrassing if you're a man and you can't provide for your wife. It was only when copper prices tumbled and there was the structural adjustment policies that suddenly interest shifted because of that macroeconomic change. Um, And then people suddenly supported female employment. So for geographical reasons, for political reasons, for macroeconomic reasons, it can be very hard to shift those expectations. So, but the point is, how do norms change? One, you might have that shift in interest with macroeconomy, for example. Two, then you have the shift in behavior. And that can be a, a result of, you know, a few outliers being a little bit, you know, transgressive, uh, a lucky situation like France fitting with a particular national political culture. But then... If enough people see, if enough people start changing, and exact, and can I, can I segue again to Me Too? So, for example, we had Me Too last year. Now, there have always been a few women who have spoken out about sexual harassment and sexual abuse. What was different here is, uh, and but often women stay quiet. So again, this is a situation of pluralistic ignorance. Women and men, sorry, women and men may stay quiet because they anticipate social disapproval. What was she wearing? Where was she going? What time out? What time out was she out? And so anticipating that social disapproval, worried about how others will perceive you know, she's a skanky or whatever, we stay quiet, and that perpetuates that suboptimal situation because. Uh, abusers see that they can get away with it, right? So they continue abusing. Their expectations are that they can you know, just grab a woman's bottom and you know get off scot-free, so to speak. So, that, so then we're trapped in that situation. Then there's the despondency trap. But what happened with Me Too is we had a high-profile case that grabbed the media headlines. It was not that the woman spoke out. That was not what was unusual. What was unusual is that she was widely supported. She was supported by other people. Then people's expectations shifted. They saw that women would be supported if they spoke out against sexual harassment, and that encouraged more and more people to come forward. Now, again, you talk about in which conditions might they change. Here it was a sort of uh, high-profile event because it was celebrities and films, right? So it was you know, more of a sort of media sensationalist story. So again, these sort yeah. of conditions that might make it more likely for people to hear <clears throat> about it. So then you get these uh, more and more people come out, then the expectation shifted. And then I, I spoke around the business, and he told me, you know, this year, they've had a huge increase in sexual harassment cases. Mm. And these are all historical cases. These are all historical. Yeah. So it's not like it's, it's people are suddenly being harassed now, but they're suddenly reporting <laughs> it now because they expect to be taken, to be seriously, taken seriously by, by HR and they expect yeah. there to be repercussions. Yeah. Sorry, that was a and, long answer. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, so still sticking on uh, the question of demonstration effects yes. and, and whether we should, you know, impose specific solutions from above right mm. so you know uh two things that are interesting in 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 the implications of the paper that that i, I really think can be applied to uh international development since we're all 
international development. Yes, we, we, we realize actually we don't know if you are if you hold the title assistant professor of international development and you are listening to this podcast, please get in touch. We're not sure how many members of this club there are. It's the three of us. And we're aware of that. We're sure there are others, but we we are surprised to hear that we all yeah. in fact have the same title. That we yeah. never agreed to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. it's a kind of exclusive club. <laughs> yeah. So international development, yes, right? Ted. Uh, what I'm hearing is that you know we should have global goals or aspirational goals, and then let countries, uh, uh, you know, find solutions that try to meet those goals, conditional and local context. So you're saying it sounds like the SDGs or the MDGs yes. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and then and then secondly, you know, you read my paper as a support for the SDGs. Really? The yes. other thing that uh, uh, I see happening mm. is that you know we often try to. <coughs> design activism right yes. so i see a lot of reform efforts whereby uh you know we take everyone to a workshop we train yeah, them on yeah, how yeah, to do yeah. x in a country yeah, yeah. y right uh while you know what i'm seeing is that you know what we should do is again have a, an agenda but let the the Finns use their number one sort of mm. local dynamics to do their own thing let the swiss do their own thing let the kenyans or indonesians do their own thing uh and in that way then the solutions will be plugged into uh, local political economies and social structures and, and therefore are more, even, more likely to stick. They know how to exploit power relations in their own context better than anyone would from outside. Um, so how can, we, how can we scale this from, from Europe mm. and from this particular case to other social problems or mm. development problems in the world? Um, and then uh, and kind of an addendum to that uh, is um, how, how do, you, do you have any sense of how activism in the source countries for garment in the in the garment industry are uh, exploiting uh, these shifts in European countries to maybe get better rights yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, absolutely. among these farms. And may maybe yeah. let's, if, yeah. if I could suggest, maybe we take let's those in turn, you know? Yeah. So uh, that first question, so I hear the first question to be, if you don't mind my... Please, so, please. So the, because we can edit things out, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, the, so uh, I, I take the first question to be, uh, why isn't this support for the SDGs, right? Mm -hmm. Why isn't this support for global goals mm -hmm. where, with local adaptation mm -hmm. to them? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, the second question is something like, uh, we have problem-driven iterative ad adaptation. Is this an argument for something like solution-driven iterative adaptation, right? Where you start, where you have a solution strategy, yeah. but then the way you execute that strategy yeah, it changes on the ground. Yep. Is that a fair? Perfect, yeah. Okay, segue. Brilliant, for, the brilliant, and if I could say Ken, maybe this doesn't go in, I'm sorry. No, but, no, please put it in, put it in. It's a brilliant, I really think, I think that's a really uh, wonderful way of broadening the sort of implications of this paper in a way that uh, at least I didn't see on first read and perhaps you've considered deeply. No, no, I haven't considered. I haven't considered. You know, Ken, it's funny you mention uh, global goals. I have a previous paper on the MDGs which highlighted something similar. So, for example, Zambia around. So, Zambia with the formation of the MDGs, they weren't just because there was an MDG 5 for maternal health. That didn't make the government suddenly more concerned about MDG 5. But around 2006, many senior civil servants and politicians realized that Zambia was lagging behind. Yeah. And I was talking to senior civil servants, and they were like, no, Malawi can't do better than us. Zimbabwe, Chad, Chad, a conflict-afflicted country cannot do better than us. And it was so embarrassing. Well, one, it was this reputational thing, but two, it was inspirational. Because for so long, people thought, well, you know, women just die. If they're living in the bush, it's hard to get them to hospitals, you know. It's inevitable. You know, these these numbers, what are, you know, this goes back to your point about how different people interpret a fire. If you just have a high death rate, you know, what can you do? That That's how it is. 
But then, because of the MDG started introducing these elite tables and comparing them to African peers and seeing African peers doing well was one, embarrassing, two, inspiring. It was like, wow, we can actually change things. And that really galvanized um, a lot of reformists within Zambia. And that, and they got, yeah. uh, you know, there, there were a couple of other things going on. So absolutely, I'm with you that uh, this inspiratist demonstration effect can work for global goals. That said, I wouldn't necessarily interpret my paper as showing support for the global goals because I don't think we need... Okay, here's the thing. I think that international agreements, for example, like the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention, you know, these voluntary agreements, the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention, the UN Guiding Principles, those provide international legitimacy, similarly with the SDGs. So all these sorts of voluntary international covenants can provide legitimacy to local activists. But I don't think in all cases we need that international legitimacy. So, for example, look at AOC with the Green New Deal. You've got a case where, you know, that's not something, the Green New Deal isn't taken from some sort of big international agreement. There weren't participatory workshops in each each context. But you have a a politician with a a major media presence and she takes that idea forward and people get excited about it. And then over in Britain, people are now talking about the Green New Deal because they've been inspired and and now they become slightly more hopeful. So I think the general message is about overcoming the despondency trap. Yes, that can support International that can be in concert with international agreements, but I don't think the international agreements are, necessar- are a yeah. necessary condition. Yeah, and you know, and it, so so yeah, what I'm about to say is not is not fully formed, and it, it's a bit fuzzy, but I think there's some weight to it. Um, mm. You know, often with new problem areas, we mm. we typically don't have you know mental models of how mm. to think about them within yes. our politics and economies, uh, and at times we don't even have the vocabulary yes. to, talk, yes. you know, to use while describing the problem. Yes, right. So. Again, yeah, having a positive deviant uh, show how how to talk about a problem, how to frame the question, um, might help start the conversation elsewhere. That, that, I think that's such an important point. Like people in many global supply chains just hadn't thought of the idea that you could regulate our companies. I mean, for some people, they would just liked it, but were despondent too. They just really have not conceptualized it. Are there many routes to overcoming despondency and different routes? would work in different places. So as we start to think through mm-hmm. a conceptualization of that, you know, what are your instincts on what divides the appropriate way to overcome despondency? Okay, so it's going to vary. Let me give two illustrative examples. So, for example, I have a great paper on why <laughs> income inequality fell in Latin America. That's partly about mobilization, seeing loads of indigenous people to the, come to the streets, realizing your strength in numbers and being emboldened by that. Also about securing gains from government, realizing that the government is responsive, that the government will listen to indigenous people's concerns, seeing that indigenous people can be electorally successful, inspired others, indigenous groups to form political parties, for example. Uh, we can also see that happening in India. So Gabby Crooks-Wisner has a great paper on this. And she highlights that often poor rural Indian citizens do not invest in sustained mobilization, do not go to their government to ask for stuff because they never see it happening. They never see the government providing these public goods like wells. Like even though they've an acute and chronic need, they just don't go to the government because they've never seen it. They don't see these governments delivering these public services. Whereas in other villages, in the same, in the same, very proximate, have responsive governments. So 
It's not that the government is always responsive and is just shilling this stuff out, but rather these people are slightly more hopeful, so they so they invest in sustained mobilization until they can secure the public goods. Yeah. And the and how norms change there is if you've got slightly broader social networks, if you're sort of mixing and and moving with these different people and then you hear about a neighboring village the where the government is being more responsive then that helps you overcome this despondency trap because they they've got it well i could have that too and so then they start pushing for it back home well there's this really nice paper by danica on uh bangladeshi migrants going to malaysia and they go to malaysia and they see women in working in technical jobs and they're like huh Women could work in technical jobs. I'll start pushing for that at home in, in, in Bangladesh. So in all these areas, and we also see it happening um, in the economy. So, for example, to take the uh, Colombian city of Medellin, there was, it used to be a horrifically violent, horrifically violent city, but then the government invested in, in certain reforms to make it a slightly safer place. Then investors became more confident in economic returns. People started investing more in the city. Citizens became more confident in government accountability. So they started pressuring and mobilizing for more government accountability. So whether it's in terms of society, in terms of gender and sexual harassment, whether it's in terms of politics and our expectations of the state, whether it's in terms of financially in uh, assets and investors, in all these areas, what I'm suggesting is that we've got despondency traps and the question is how to overcome them to and overcome get into them. these uh, feedback loops. And yeah. the way that that happens will vary according to whether we're talking about or workers organizing and strikes, yeah. etc. So, but the, I mean, principle, yeah. the principle is what I'm Yeah, so in. what I'm hearing is, yes. is, is, is you know, something else that uh, I've tried shopping around with. Every time I talk to IFIs, uh, people at the bank and elsewhere, I tell them this, USAID, that you know, it's sometimes it's okay to pick winners, right? Mm-hmm. So if I see, mm-hmm. you know, a subnational unit in a developing country doing very well, yeah. right? It's it's key to secure that gain because that's what's going to provide the demonstration. Itself. Yes, yes. So that others can see that. Oh, yes. look, Lagos can collect taxes. Yes, right. Makoeni in Kenya can provide. I think that's fantastic. Yes. Uh, and how are they doing it? So that you know, we're not always comparing. You know, these these countries to Finland, but we're comparing them to, you know, next door neighbors in the same social and political context doing better. I think that, yeah, uh, I think and, that's and brilliant. That allows, you know, for, for these uh, subnational units to get out of this bad equilibrium of we don't get uh, good services, so we don't, we don't ask for it. They don't expect us to ask, so they don't provide it. And, you know, I'm with you, Ken, 100 percent. And I'm so glad that you're actually doing that in practice, speaking to the RFIs. Alice. Yes. This has been brilliant. Uh, Thank you uh, for being with us uh, on Rocking Our Priors. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think this picture of how the world can change, uh, of how those who want to make change sometimes can make it happen, not just in their context, but well beyond, uh, by overcoming despondency, uh, by overcoming pluralistic ignorance, by helping us imagine a broader universe of the possible is an important vision which can help us change our world for the better. Um, And with that, I think we're going to transition to uh, another paper. Ken? Yes. So um, we're going to talk about uh, a paper that looks at uh, subnational bureaucrats in Turkey. Uh, uh, And Dan will will answer a few questions from Alice and I. Uh, So Dan, could you go ahead and introduce the paper for us? Sure, yeah. So you know, first, just to say, you know, since we were doing this podcast, since we'd arranged to do this podcast here at the American Political Science Association annual meetings, uh, rather than go, rather than choose a paper that I already 
knew and loved, mm. right? Or that I knew had recently come out. Mm. I took the strategy of searching the program mm. of, the, of the event uh, to find interesting looking papers from people who I honestly had never heard the name of before. That's awesome. And then I wrote those people mm. and asked them for their papers. That's awesome. Uh, and then this is one of those papers uh, that emerged. And I have to say, I read many brilliant papers, uh, of which uh, this one uh, was, was one of the most brilliant. Yeah. And also, I think, fit the kind of broader story uh, of the other papers we're discussing here today. So thank you. So the author of this paper is a woman named uh, Tuba Bozja, mm -hmm. uh, who is a PhD student at uh, MIT Political Science. And the paper is called The Social Bureaucrat. How Social Proximity Amongst Bureaucrats uh, Affects Local Governance in Turkey. Uh, and what it does is ask, uh, and it comes from uh, having, so I, and I went to Tuba's presentation of the mm. paper yesterday, mm. uh, chatted with her briefly afterwards. The paper comes from her work in Turkey. Mm. And I have to say, reading the paper, it just, it just sings with, I have a real world thing that I want to explain in the world mm. that I think the literature doesn't know. Mm. And I want to show... Mm. All of us who think about the state, who think about capacity, who think about bureaucracy, that there are important things here that, that we're missing. And, and what Tuba is highlighting is that bureaucrats get things done based on their social proximity, mm. based on their ability to pick up the phone and call other bureaucrats. Mm. And that's an important point, that social proximity here means the relationship of bureaucrats to each other. Yes. In other political science works, mm. sometimes social proximity means of bureaucrats to citizens, mm. of bureaucrats to the national government. Here we're looking at the interrelationship mm. between mm. the bureaucrats. And what she finds, basically, is that uh, bureaucrats who are better able to communicate based mm. just on geography, mm. after controlling for an incredible suite of things, mm. I imagine we'll get into the data, so I won't, I won't put that forward here, mm. um, that the bureaucrats who are closest together uh, get the most done. And that uh, the ability maybe drawing a little bit from what you were just talking about, Alice, the ability to know that you can pick up the phone, the ability to be one of those uh, Indian uh, villages where the head of the village knows that you can address the state mm -hmm. uh, is critically important mm. uh, to getting, uh, getting performance from the state. That state capacity is varied, is not monolithic, and it comes fundamentally from people and their relationships with each other. Because guess what? The only people when the state interacts with, the, with society are not just those in society. Mm -hmm. The state is also people. It yeah, is yeah. composed of people. Mm -hmm. And to get things done, we need to think about those individuals who make the state go. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point, which speaks to, uh, so the, I see this paper speaking to this emergent literature on bureaucracies in developing countries, uh, right? Because uh, you know, we often think about when whenever we think about bureaucratic reform, we often think about the long route of accountability, mm -hmm. right? That we can have good elections, which will uh, produce the politicians mm -hmm. who will employ good bureaucrats, uh, and and the performance through the bureaucracy will then uh, make voters like the politicians mm -hmm. and reward them. Or if they don't do a good job, they'll punish mm -hmm. them, right? And that kind of that uh, sort of a simple approach, while useful in some in some contexts. Uh, brackets this big black box that is the bureaucracy, right? The bureaucracy has 
management questions to be asked, right? How do you make sure that your bureaucrats can call each other mm-hmm. and, and, and get things done without always having to, you know, call the provincial governor or mm-hmm. the president's office? Or write a letter or, or engage letter. through formal channels yeah. and that kind of way. Yeah, how, how do you design a bureaucracy that can, that can get things done uh, with some local autonomy uh, and without always having to, to look to the center? Um, so, you know, Dan, having read the paper, what, what are some of, could you tell us, you know, two or three things that you, you learned from the paper that you think might be applicable in this general question of thinking about bureaucratic management? Uh, kind of also, you know, bringing in some of your own work on, uh, uh, you know, how sort of giving autonomy to the implementers might, might shift how things get done. Or can I, can I add, add, add to that? How did this rock your priors? Like, how did this make you think differently? Just as a personal question. So not just describing the paper, but how did this make you think differently about the state? Yeah. And bureaucrats? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for both those questions. Yeah. So I guess uh, to take the second Mm. one first, Mm. um, you know, I I tend to think of the Turkish state uh, as uh, more monolithic than most. Yes. Right? Uh, As quite centralized. Yes. Uh, It is often kind of the paradigmatic example of a centralized top-down state in a developing country, Mm. right, that is effective Mm. at being centralized Mm. and top-down. And I guess it made, it pushed further the boundary of where I imagined, where I realized that I should start by thinking about the individuals who populate the state Mm. rather than merely the policies of those state, uh, of of that state. Because if it's true in Turkey, to me, Turkey is like a hard case, mm, right, mm. for this kind of test. Mm. And the fact that it's true, the fact that it's so true that somebody who had worked with the Turkish government uh, in uh, a prominent position in a ministry, as Tuba had, mm. then decided this was the main thing she wanted to spend her PhD thinking about, mm. right, suggests just how prominent this phenomenon is. Mm. And it suggests also to where, Can where you, you just clarify that? Why why would it be particularly surprising that in a centralized state it would be important to know and have good relations with other bureaucrats? Why is that surprising? Well, I guess I mean to say that in a state with high capacity, in a mm-hmm. kind of uh, in, in in a state where we imagine that black box to be a particularly functional box, mm-hmm. we might imagine rules to matter more and discretion to matter less. In yep. a state that's highly centralized, we might imagine people to be following rules more. We might imagine rules to be more present. We might imagine monitoring to be better. All things that would suggest we should expect less variation to come from issues like how easy is it to pick up the phone because we're all following central uh, central yeah. instructions. Yeah, because, you know, when, yeah, me too, like, think, thinking about Turkey, you imagine the transmission line to be solid from, you know, Ankara or Istanbul to the local level, right, because the state is strong. Uh, unlike weaker states whereby, you know, the president's directives might not leave the capital. Yeah. So it's not at all surprising in a state that has limited control in an area of limited statehood. I, of course, would imagine that social proximity and many other things are going to drive what happens as results. But and I should say the substantive significance here. So Tuba has some mediation models that suggest just the geographic proximity, Mm. which is by no means all of what social proximity is, explains about 25% of the variation in the outcomes she's looking for, Mm. right? So I don't know, I'm I'm entirely making up numbers, Mm. but if geographic proximity is 25%, then social proximity Mm. feels to me like I don't know, 60%, yeah. right? Which is an incredible share of the variation in the outcome to be explained by these kinds of interpersonal mm. subjective factors mm. uh, 
in a state where we imagine the transmission lines to be amongst the strongest. Mm -hmm. If you ask me if it's if it is 50 percent in Turkey, I think that number is going to be higher Mm -hmm. in almost every other developing country Mm -hmm. uh, rather than lower. And that's what I mean when I think of Turkey as a hard case. And two, yes, sorry, please. No, no, please. And two, what you were what you were saying, Ken, uh, this question of discretion. And thank you very kindly for uh, inviting me to frame in my own my own work. You know, so in my own work, of course, I think about. So in my own work, I think about the relationship between uh, between discretion and outcomes mm-hmm. uh, for uh, people at kind of the the coal face of the organization, uh, asking these management questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not looking at at the Turkish state per se, but thinking about sort of where people matter, and implicitly, of course, that means what they want, what they will do, what how they will use that discretion. Yeah. So. You know, one thing that comes across here is that, of course, that discretion could be used for a lot of things. It does seem like bureaucrats, at least at the margin, want to use it to produce the outcomes that the policy is oriented towards. Otherwise, in places where bureaucrats could better communicate with each other, we might think of that as collusion and as resistance, right? Instead, we're getting kind of... um, what in a kind of Besley and Gattak, two economists who talk about mission match, the match of the mission of the desires of the bureaucrat to the to the state, right, or to the employer in a private sector setting, setting uh, in in a private sector setting. When we get more, we need to have at least sufficient alignment for bureaucrats to be using that to push forward on the goals. But it does beg the question to me. To me, one of the unspoken things about this paper is, you know, Tuba builds incredible data four times over, right? Yeah, can I yeah. really underscore that oh, point? Yeah. Like, it blew yeah. my mind. Yeah. It blew my mind. Yeah, so it, it is such incredible data that she has, I believe, a couple hundred interviews that she doesn't even mention until <laughs> yeah. she gets to them because it's the fifth most interesting data set <laughs> yeah. or something like that, right? So, you know, and along the way, to use as a control variable, yes. she builds the first ever ethnic census of Turkey by coding villages as Kurdish and Alevi, a religious minority. Um, and she can use that as a control because of her makeup. What she can't, uh, because of her setup, she, she can't, in the current empirical setting, tell us what the differences are across, uh, across ethnic uh, and religious minority lines. And, you know, that, I want to point that up. If discretion matters quite a bit to what's getting done, if social proximity matters, mm-hmm. let's imagine that we are more socially proximate mm-hmm. to those with whom we share characteristics. Yes, I think that's yeah. probably mm-hmm. true, yeah. right? Yeah. That means that even if we want, we're in charge, and we want to be equally good mm-hmm. to the people like us and the people not like mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. but the people like us are more likely to pick up the phone and call us, and we're more yeah. likely to call mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. that means that we're going to get discriminatory incidents without discriminatory intent, it yeah. seems to me. Yeah. Um, and Tuba... Tuba's work doesn't doesn't frame that up in the way it's currently stated because she can't examine it directly. But just by focusing on the kind of importance of informal networks, it brings to bear, it brings up all these questions about the use of discretion and the misuse of discretion. Surely we're the people who are part of the state do not want good outcomes, say, for minorities, but even where they might want good outcomes for minorities, right? Even where they have an earnest desire Mm -hmm. to see the state be fair, if social proximity moves along the 
dimensions moves along the margins of other uh, of minority status, then yeah. uh, we may end up with a lot of inequity at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so uh, I I should underscore that you know the data sort of collection effort mm. in this paper is fantastic. Uh, Tuba is able to take on a subject bureaucracy that many people often don't think of as exciting, mm -hmm. and make it exciting through you know detailed mixed methods and and you know a nice narrative that fits this big structural question that she's addressing. Now, reading through the paper, I couldn't decide whether this is a uh, you know a strong case for decentralization, or you know a, a roadmap for uh, management science in a centralized state. Uh, you know, interesting. Yeah, Can you say more? It, yeah. So. so because you know, I, I mean, just thinking about mission matching, you mm. know, what the center wants versus uh, what's getting implemented at the local level. Uh, so in some sense, you could say that the this you know bureaucrats are able to call each other and implement these plans, <coughs> in part because on the one hand they're constrained uh, uh, by the center, which kind of insulates them from local politics, uh, right? Uh, and so the, they're able to implement a plan using the social relations at the local level, uh, but without undue exposure to local politics, uh, which might not be the case in a completely decentralized state, whereby uh, bureaucrats are more likely to be socially proximate, not just among themselves, but also to the people they serve. That's a brilliant question, Ken. Um, I think that as I, uh, I think I want the answer to be yes and. Right. So that is to say um, what we're seeing here is the um, is the maximal extension of a centralized state. We are seeing the lowest level that state penetrates from the top interacting with elected village heads who are the highest, maybe the only level of the state that is coming from the bottom. Right. So what would decentralization mean? Well, it would seem to me it would mean, and you are much closer to decentralization literature than I, so uh, point me in the right direction if I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me it would mean shifting the boundary uh, of where the center ends and the um, kind of muhtar level, the village leader level system comes up, right? Yeah. Um, and so if social proximity is an important part of generating... Uh, generating good outcomes because uh, dense networks, mutual understandings about what is possible, about what can be asked, that are not always formal, informality as a good thing, right, in this, in this story. Mm -hmm. uh, if all of that works inside the top-down bureaucracy, I would expect it to be all the more powerful inside the bottom-up bureaucracy. So the social proximity of the village head to the appointed representative of the central, of the central state, state is always going to be lower than the social proximity, not always, but I would imagine will usually be lower than the social proximity of that uh, bottom-up village leader to others in the village if they had more control rights on their own. But at some point, of course, decentralization has to meet the central unit, unless we decentralize everything, right? Yeah. Uh, which is not close to where we are in this conversation about decentralization. At some point, the decentralized state is going to interact. The top down and the bottom up have to meet in the middle. And whether that middle, as it is here, is pretty close to the ground, or whether that middle moves up further into the atmosphere, at some point, 
that relationship between those two actors is going to be critical. And Tuba is showing us that juncture, that conjuncture between, uh, between the two. Uh, and it seems to me that in that sense, it tells us what conditional on being in a top-down centralized state, what management, how we can improve management, right? It also tells us, it also suggests that decentralization might lead to even better outcomes. Um, and it suggests how we should manage the relationship between those two categories, between where management ends and devolution begins, right? Yeah. Um, or where the community looks back up to the center uh, in a way that thinks about the relations between the actors on the two sides of that line, wherever that boundary lies. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a great point because, uh, so if, if looking at the decentralization or devolution literature, um, there's often a lot of emphasis on the politics. So, you know, we, we have locally elected officials, presumably because they'll be more accountable locally. But we never think about, you know, what does this mean for bureaucracy and bureaucratic provision of public goods and services? Uh, and so, you know, I think this paper kind of tells us ways in which, as you were saying, we can interact, you know, the need for a competent bureaucracy, presumably linked to the national government for coordination reasons, uh, but which also is optimally exposed to local politics and accountability via some locally elected person. Um, and, and I think, you know, knowing exactly what point is optimal uh, is not always clear, right? Mm. Uh, because, you know, we often, you know, Absolutely. implement devolution at, you know, the first subnational unit, but, you know, m that might be optimal in Nigeria, but suboptimal in Uganda, right, uh, or Turkey. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, 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 I, don't, I don't think the literature is talking much about that. Yeah, you know? and, and it also suggests... I think this if I think this would be a paper for somebody if they if they were to write it it suggests that a model if we were just to write out models of what the right level of devolution is is it the first you put it as the first subnational unit yeah so if it's the first cut if it's the second cut if it's the third cut in each case a model thinking about the cut should the optimal cut should incorporate what the implications of that cut are yeah. for the edge of that cut with the next level, right? Yeah. Which I at least don't know that I've ever had that thought before or seen in writing. And let me also say that you point up something that model would need to think about that Tuba's paper intentionally puts to the side, which is, of course, local accountability yes. channels, right? Yeah. So Tuba's, we've been speaking only in a kind of management optimization sense, uh, the right answer to that question has something to do with sort of efficiency, but it also has plenty to do with the kind of electoral incentives and controls that we're going to turn to, I suspect, later in our conversation. Um, but the just realizing that the pure management question has this kind of complex two-sidedness is to me a big step forward in at least my conceptualization to your question. Just to say one more thing about mm, those methods, mm, mm. Um, you know, in addition to that village census, mm. Tuba also uses cell phone networks yeah. to, uh, and I want to highlight this in particular because I at least had not seen it done quite mm. like this. Mm. Maybe you have, Ken? No. Um, she uses cell phone networks to think not just about who calls who, but about the social proximity of areas of the province, of areas of the district, to each other using the antennas. Because when one cell phone antenna talks to another cell phone antenna, that means the people in one place are talking to the people around the other place, right? And using what I can 
it boggles my mind how much data is there she, to think about. She's yeah. really amazing. She's yeah. really amazing. So. I just wanted. I just wanted. No, to throw no, that no. I, 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 th- I, I'm, I'm happy for us to spend a full half hour. <laughs> no, talking. No, 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 no. I'm being serious. I, I think it's mind blowing. Um, okay, right. Let's pivot to accountability. Ken, take us away. Yeah, so uh, the third paper that we're talking about today is a paper by George Fosu, who's an assistant professor at LSE. Um, So George did uh, this fantastic paper looking at how electoral accountability uh, might strengthen incentives for public goods provision. Uh, And what he does is that, uh, so through uh, an election monitoring effort in Ghana, uh, he randomized the intensity of exposure to uh, monitoring at the polling station level. Uh, different proportions of polling stations within constituencies were monitored to vary the intensity of treatment. Uh, and then what he finds is that uh, elected members who are most monitored uh, were more likely to provide uh, more money uh, via the constituency development funds that Ghanaian legislators get to provide constituency service and, and public goods uh, in their constituencies. Uh, so the general takeaway uh, uh, in the paper uh, is that uh, you know, cleaner elections, if you will, uh, produce uh, politicians who, because they are aware that the electoral sanctioning mechanism might work, uh, are more likely to invest uh, effort in providing public goods and services for constituents. Uh, now, we're on rocking priors, and, and, and I should say that I was moved by this paper because uh, I've, over the last kind of few years, I've mm. grown skeptical of uh, the ability of elections yes. to really shift uh, public mm. goods provision. Mm. Uh, so this paper is making me rethink some of my ideas as to, you know, the weakness of the electoral channel. When I read the findings is that yeah. uh, if they expect that they can't rig themselves yes, back yes, in. Yes, 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 yes. Right? So, so yeah. So the, the, the tweak here is that, you know, you take away the ability to win an election for Yes, yes. Then they're more likely to invest in the other yes, way yes. of winning elections, which is trying to please voters. Yes. So can yes. I ask about this pleasing of the voters? So, you know, this is kind of on the data itself rather than the implications. Um, so... The community development funds, these are funds that each... I'm sorry, the yeah. constituency development funds. CDF, how can you get wrong? It's like, it's Ken's favorite thing. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm looking at Ken, I'm saying CDF. You know, it's terrible. So, um, constitu- these constituency development funds, these are funds that... The improvement is in the usage rate of the, yeah. CD, of the, of the CDF. Of the CDF. But it doesn't go up to 100. Yeah. They're still leaving money on the table. Yes. So... I could spend more money to help people with more effort. I decide not to spend all the money. I decide to spend a little bit more than people in other areas, but still a lot of it, I think even the majority of it, even in the group that is monitored, goes back to the state, right? So, you know, at the risk of sounding like a wet blanket, how excited should I be (laughs) about a finding that I waste not 90% of the money that could help people, but only 75% of it. Why am I spending anything less than 100%? Yeah, and you know, George doesn't get into this, but some of my uh, work in Kenya does. Uh, uh, so, you know, looking at the Kenya CDF, uh, in aggregate, legislators only spend about 70% of it, which is higher than the Ghanaian average. Right, so if I'm an MP, I have money to give both of you, uh, right? If I choose to spend money in your area, not Alice's, Alice might not like me. Right, so in some instances, it might actually be best to just not spend the money. Hmm. 
Um, so uh, the other thing might be that uh, I am from a constituency where voters only demand, uh, like a common knowledge is that voters only demand one thing. Now in my surveys, I find that this is actually not true. There's often <coughs> variance between what people actually want and what politicians think they want. So a typical Kenyan MP will spend money on lots of schools uh, and a few road efforts, uh, right, and hospitals. Uh, and then give out money for school bursaries uh, to subsidize attendance to secondary school, etc. Uh, these are the key areas. Now, everyone spends money on just those things, uh, right? And to spend money, you also need your local machines that are plugged into this household that will demand the money. So structurally, the, the lack of a big enough demand at the local level uh, is driving this uh, sort of non-expenditure. And you see this, so in more urban areas, in wealthier areas where households might be more plugged in, political machines are bigger, uh, MPs actually borrow against future disbursements uh, of this a million dollars that they get each year. Uh, in places where, you know, population is sparse, uh, more rural, less organized Social proximity, one would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not spending the money uh, because it's more effort for them to organize the demand uh, they may not spend the money, they may not give as many people, the, uh, building a school may not be in a catchment area that's big enough. So you end up not building any schools because you don't want to build a school in one corner of the constituency and piss off the other uh, part of the constituency. So I suspect this is uh, partly what's happening in Ghana, that uh, and Ghana, I should say, has a stronger party system. Uh, and, and, you know, we can, we can talk about scope conditions uh, I think the findings in this paper may be stronger in Ghana than uh, they could be elsewhere because Ghana has a robust two-party system. Uh, people have alternatives, right? If you if you vote if you don't vote for an MPP MP, uh, you might choose the NDC candidate next time, uh, and so there's a clear-cut competition, uh, which which makes this clean elections game makes sense, uh, right? But, you know, if, if I'm winning my seat in Kenya with 30% of the vote, uh, I could always rig, uh, you know, in one corner of the constituency because the monitoring is never 100%, mm. right? And we shouldn't assume that uh, the MPs are, you know, passively waiting to be monitored, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's very easy to rig an election if you want. Uh, don't do it, but... But, but, but my, my, going back to my question is that... So my understanding is some of the literature on African politics is that, yes, there have been elections, but people have been able to rig these in numerous ways. Yeah. So whether it's in terms of an advance of the election, you know, controlling the media, whether it's in terms of patronage, disbursement, or whether it's on, on the election day, which I guess is uh, a, a, even a minority of cases, right? But that, that's been my understanding, that people have been rigging elections, and that's one of the reasons why elections don't end up, uh, don't generate incentives for public goods. Other things being that, as in our, our, our domestic context, you know, voters may, may not prioritise public goods, whether it's in the yeah. US or the UK. Some voters want, you know, things Private besides goods. economic... As, 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 I'm sorry. No, please, please. Voters want some things besides... Well, yeah, public goods, economic growth. You know, there are some voters in England which want different I, things to yeah, myself. I, I was, I was going to say that as, uh, as our, as Ken Apollo said on Twitter, uh, just did he say? just He's this got week, some great tweets. Yeah, what just did he this say? week, yeah, this this really smart guy, Ken yeah, Apollo, yeah, yeah, he had a tweet yeah, where was, uh, <laughs> after <laughs> after Brexit, <laughs> yeah. after 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 the proroguing of the UK Parliament, he said, if only. The UK had strong Western institutions. I love that guy. If I love only, that guy. Yeah, it's, it's exactly, it's spot on. 
Because that's exactly what we would say. How many times if did it you was a that cat? I, I throw it out there every now and then and something big it's happens good. and it's like, what's, what's going on in the world? Does this really rock your prize? Because I thought that one of the reasons why elections had not led to, you know, not been associated with economic growth or poverty reduction was partly but not exclusively because there are so many opportunities to rig them. And to, I'd always yeah. thought that if only... So I, I, I don't no, know I mean, that I was so, that yeah, surprised I, I by the say, finding. Yeah, so... I, uh, my surprise came from two things. One, mm. in the Ghanaian context, right, mm. the party system is uh, institutionalized enough that I didn't expect the personal vote to matter much, right? Mm. The MP's effort mm. shouldn't matter much as, mm. as, uh, as, as much as the party brand, mm. uh, right? Mm. Uh, the, the parliamentary elections are held at the same time as the presidential election, and you, yeah, the idea that. Coattails effects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I expected that to be driving most of the outcomes. And so seeing this tweak happen was, was interesting. The second thing was that. So the effect is not just uh, on I was uh, monitored and therefore suspect that I'll be monitored, uh, but George also finds that uh, among elected members, incumbent members, if they're reminded that uh, they're going to be monitored again, uh, they put in more effort, right? Uh, now, again, you know, the fact that he, find, he finds any effects on that margin is, is interesting, right? Because, uh, again, I would suspect that if I'm an incumbent member, I'm already spending money on the right things, uh, because in political science we assume that you know politicians are all knowing and that this you know mm. they're mayhuan in the sense that they spend their time trying to get reelected. Mm. Uh, now, because of some of the work that I've done, uh, it's it's now clear to me that politicians do not always know what they need to do to get reelected. Mm, good point. Mm. Yeah, so we shouldn't just assume that they know what they need to do. To so I guess the, your point here is that Kenyan politi- um, Ghanaian politicians learn quickly. Yeah, so, the, so in, yeah, in this particular study, uh, they seem to have you know, learned very quickly that uh, they're going to be facing cleaner elections, mm. relatively cleaner elections, uh, and so they need to put in more effort mm. and, uh, and, to please voters. And that begs the question, mm. I mean, have they learned actually, do they invest in learning more about their constituents too? Mm. So does the distribution change mm-hmm. of what the CDF goes towards beyond, if the, if the Ghanaian case parallels your Kenyan case, I understand you were bringing yeah. it over from there, and politicians often, are, in fact, are not perhaps spending in the most efficient way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the paper doesn't really. No, get it just it. looks yeah. at the, t- yeah. the total, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, efficiency considerations, but that would be a great yes, extension yes. of the paper to see, you know, uh, how efficiently uh, do MPs spend the money. Now, you know, I mean, looking at amounts uh, is great, and I think is yeah. a is a first step. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, in in this kind of work, mm, but I think mm. what we need to to do more is know how exactly uh, politicians spending the money. Uh, uh, in terms of what organizational channels are they using. Now, you know, constituency service is key, mm. uh, is, is a key mechanism for winning elections. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I come out strong on the side of, uh, you know, the purists who want separated powers with legislators mm-hmm. making laws and stopping at that. Uh, but I, I fundamentally believe that the power of legislatures come from uh, uh, their ability to get reelected and command support among the electorate, mm-hmm. and the best way to get that is through constituency service. Uh, now, in countries with strong bureaucracies, that often means calling the bureaucrat and making sure someone gets their passport on time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In places with weaker bureaucracies, uh, CDFs might help. You know, cut the middleman, have the MP implement the development project on their own, uh, or using some local bureaucracy. 
but I, I think uh, there's need to think critically about what that MP bureaucracy looks like uh, so that it's not ad hoc, uh, one-off expenditures that do not build on any organizational uh, sort of structure at the local level. Yeah, so, you know, and, and this this might be because uh, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the U.S. administrative state and, and, and congressional powers over the years, right? So think of the U.S. Congress. A typical congressperson has spent many years in Congress. Mm. They know they, the bureaucrats that they need to talk to, they yes. have relations with them, right? They yes. can pick up the phone and have them do yes. stuff, yes. right? Now, in most developing countries, you have the problem of very high turnover. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, so MPs don't do a good job. So they don't get reelected. They don't do a good mm. job in part because they don't have the capacity to do a good mm. job. Now, CDF could be a catalyst. Yes. Right. Of getting enough of them reelected so that they're around long enough to build the relationships with the bureaucrats. Oh, I see. So that they can call I, them. So and, you see and, it as complementary. I, I couldn't agree more. I was going to say exactly that, that if we end up with embedded politicians, yes. then so if we're in a state, some some states have a huge anti-incumbency uh, bias, uh -huh. right? So we almost always see turnover at the next election. Uh -huh. There's some, yeah. some parts of India, for example, uh -huh. right? Where the thing that is almost, the few things are more certain than that the incumbent will lose. Uh -huh. If we're in that system, then a CDF is going to be a problem for this kind of social proximity story. If, on the other hand, we're in a place where we're going to the politician is going to become part of the system, mm. all the better. And to what Ken was saying about the American administrative state, uh, which I also am a fan of, I think I suspect we both see it as the most developed body of scholarship about a state's internal nuances and workings. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and there, the, actually one of the frontiers of new research there is what uh, American bureaucracy scholars are calling letter marking. Which is so earmarking is mm. the custom, of course, of uh, putting in a provision that uh, provides goods to a particular district mm. or serves a particular representative's interest. Letter marking is when those constituency services happen uh, via a congressperson writing a private letter to an agency, right? And these kinds of, there are many more of these private requests mm. and they matter much more mm. in the American context mm. than I had imagined was the case. Um, just to, this is just to underline that the American analogy carries to this kind of potential interaction of elected representatives mm -hmm. with the kind of bureaucratic apparatus of the mm -hmm. state, but only if it becomes uh, a long-term a long-term mm. relationship. So you could see CDF as a way of enabling, of strengthening social proximity because it enables those, it gives you the money to start talking, I guess. Yeah, it gives you the money to start talking, build the local networks, yeah. mm. stay in office. Right, because right, if you've so got no money to spend, then it's not only that there's nothing you can do, but you'll never be strengthening those networks and getting the wheel moving. And, and you know something yeah. I learned, I mean, too, my... Uh, but that money could, well, wait a second, wait a hold your horses down, because that money could have gone somewhere else, is my point that that money could have been gone somewhere else. It could have been embedded in the entire sort of state apparatus rather than allocated for the own yeah, MP's I mean, discretion. So my point is, so, so I guess my concern is that, you know, th those networks, that social proximity could have arisen in a different way through that money going somewhere else. Uh, yeah, so I mean, rather the, than being, the um, and you know, uh, someday I'll spend the time to, you know, do a forensic accounting of, of public expenditures in Kenya, right? Mm -hmm. So Kenya is this interesting case whereby so there used to be no money. And then all of a sudden, MPs were like, well, we're going to take 2.5% of the budget for ourselves. And then the money was magically available. Mm. Now, uh, CDF, uh, I think net of corruption has been a positive 
like an unambiguous positive uh, in the Kenyan case because it's been a form of fiscal devolution. Uh, there's money that's now going and reaching parts of the country mm. where nothing was being done. Mm. Uh, new schools are being mm. built, new mm. hospitals, mm. road repairs, water systems, uh, right, in places that the government just wasn't spending the money. Money was mm. being uh, lost or mm. not spent at the national level. Uh, so uh, I would say that uh, CDF may not take too much. It's the, away from, you know, core expenditures uh, because most countries that I know of uh, uh, only spend about 70% of the budgeted money. Right, so CDF is taking part of that thirty percent that remains mm. unspent. And and I guess you, you so then uh, your point is not just the the money is moving to the bureaucracy in far off places in the sort of rural areas perhaps, but also those networks, those networks, those state networks, for example, are are being strengthened outside the centre. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you know where I was going to go is this question oh, of yes, kind sorry, of learning. No, no, not all. So it was this question of learning about preferences, mm. right? So you know the politicians. Uh, if politicians are often, in fact, ignorant, uh, if mm-hmm. they have money and are spending it and are working with bureaucrats and the social proximity is mm-hmm. is growing over time, right, mm-hmm. we would expect learning to occur, or I would expect learning to occur about preferences. But, yeah. you know, just to say, I mean, for any listeners who may have made it this far into the podcast, you know, <laughs> I mean, for, 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 the, for the 11 listeners, <laughs> for the 11 listeners who have made it this far, I, I mean, I, I've, I've heard you make this point a couple times on the podcast, and I, I think in various settings, and I think maybe it makes sense here. It's just to say, you know, we are now doing what, you know, we do all the time when we, you know, over beers or mm. coffees or lunches, which is we're talking in theoretic terms about things we do not have evidence for, mm. right? Yeah. And that's the exciting thing is like this is, you know, coming up with new ideas of how this could work. How this could work. I, I could be... I would I would be open to research, which would indeed rock my priors, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that I'm entirely wrong about this, yeah. and CDFs yeah. are in fact bad for yeah, social yeah. proximity. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, and and you know I mean the so one paradox of U.S. politics is that you know approval of Congress is very low, mm-hmm. but everyone gets reelected. Most of them get reelected, mm-hmm. right? And that's because uh, you know when when voters are making a choice, yes. Party ID matters, but what what have you done for me lately also matters, mm. uh, and and the the way I see CDF is that it's it's finally uh, giving MPs a tool with which they can do something at the local level, yeah. and that demonstration effect, going back to demonst- the awesome. power of demonstration, yeah. is that you know now I know that I can elect a member who does good with the CDF. Awesome. Uh, which is allowing MPs to campaign on their CDF record, right? Uh, the CDF league tables that are published by the CDF hmm. board in Kenya uh, each year. We know who's who's the best at, at using their the CDF. Oh, really? That's cool. Right? That's cool. So you know, it's 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 again because previously to be to get something done as an MP, you yeah. had to be friends with the minister. Mm. And often, you know, if you're in the opposition, the minister might not answer your call. No, no, I knew right? that was definitely the case yeah. in Zambia. So, yes. so now each, all of them get a million dollars each year mm. to do whatever they want with it. No. And, and that is creating demand at the local level uh, for public goods and services uh, coming from the center. Uh, now, it's still early days. Uh, mm. There's corruption, mm. obviously, as you'd expect. Uh, but I think net of everything, it's, it's a positive. Uh, because accountability only works... Uh, if I know that if I do, if I demand for a school, my MP has the capacity to build that. School. Yeah, well, it's like the um, Gabby Crooks Wisner book. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. That you see the state providing, so you you so really you, raises so you, your yeah, expectations. You raise, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and CDF you. is doing that. So yeah. where your activists are overcoming despondency, mm, mm. Uh, here 
we're overcoming um, we're c- overcoming our sense of our own inability to make change. We're overcoming yeah. helplessness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and we're we're building relationships based yeah. on material mm. interests. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. So while previously the MP was supposed to go to the center and mm-hmm. make laws and maybe provide targeted mm-hmm. uh, clientelistic benefits. Now uh, there are resources for public goods, and and these almost become entitlements, right? Once a school has been built, there's demand for more teachers because there'll be more pupils. Uh, so this, the MP then has to talk to the ministry, make sure that uh, the, the school is ongoing. So parents then you know see that oh we can actually ask for another school next year, mm. and you're creating that relationship that between voters and, exactly. and, yeah. and politicians in ways that you know you wouldn't have if there wasn't any anything being done by these politicians. Ken, I'm with you. Right, I want, so, to, I want to do one more segment now. Okay. Okay. Yes. You have both been incredibly kind talking about other people's papers, but I know that you two are doing phenomenal work, and I think my listeners would very much like... <laughs> my listeners would very much like a one-minute... Your summer. listeners? Yes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. <laughs> Ken Apollo and I are the hosts oh, of... the host today. Okay. Our, listeners, our prize. Our would very much appreciate and enjoy uh, a quick summary of what you guys have been up to this summer, what you've been researching. Did you just share it with us? Sure. Yes. So this summer uh, I was involved in two projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a long-run study of education reform in Tanzania. Uh, we have a paper that's uh, almost ready for prime time, which looks at um, electoral responses to public goods provision over multiple electoral cycles. Uh, this is, it's, it's a paper we've been working on for a while. Our main contribution is that, you know, uh, most studies typically look at one-off responses to a public good, uh, programmatic public good, right? So we expand healthcare, do we get votes? What we're doing in Tanzania is tracking the same policy of expanding access to secondary schools over time. Uh, through three electoral cycles. What we find is that the announcement of the policy is very popular. CCM gets a bump in their vote share at the local level. Mm. Uh, They get punished in 2010 in places that had schools built, in part because they were taxed for the schools and the schools weren't so great. And the effects are actually stronger in places that had good schools before these uh, new schools were introduced, which showed the public that the government wasn't doing such a great job with the schools. The second project is uh, on subnational governance in Kenya, and this uh, I see this as my second big project. Uh, I'll still do stuff on legislatures, but uh, I'm moving on to subnational governance, uh, which is looking at questions of how do citizens attribute responsibility to different tiers of government, uh, how how do citizens learn about what to expect from different tiers of government, and how does that affect uh, electoral accountability and bureaucratic management at the local level. Uh, so ki- kind of similar to the latter two papers that we're talking about today. Awesome. Ken, you have to come back when those are finished, right? Yes, yes. I'd be happy to. Dan? Yeah. So uh, I also am doing some thinking about uh, subnational government mm. here um, as part of sort of my broader next set of projects, which are around what I'm calling mission-driven bureaucrats. Yes. That is bureaucrats, servants of the state, public sector employees mm. who care about their jobs, who came to their jobs often because they cared and wanted to see the state deliver benefits. They wanted to be part of uh, doing something they see as positive, and I think we often, we should see as positive. Mm. Uh, And thinking about where management practice gets in the way of those bureaucrats Mm. doing what they want to do, and where it can help them 
uh, achieve the achieve the goals they want. Um, and uh, I have a series of projects on that, but right now I'm actually on sabbatical, uh, and I am based in Thailand at the moment, where I'm looking at uh, subnational government coordination amongst different. Uh, ministries. So Thailand is also a very centralized state. So Thailand and Turkey are often talked about in one breath and compared on many fronts. One is the kind of functioning of the state and its level of top-downness. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the local level, you've got these bureaucrats who report up to different ministries that are effectively autonomous from each other mm-hmm. uh, and are not well-coordinated by the government itself. So you have different career concerns to different ministries who want different things, and they need to work together on the ground to deliver benefits to citizens. And they, of course, when I say they, the they here is one individual from each ministry or in each function who needs to figure out uh, what they want to spend their time on. And how do they make those decisions? How do they work with each other? Do we get... So we were talking about social proximity before. Mm -hmm. Do we get... Uh, social spillovers. Mm. If I have a mission-driven bureaucrat next to a careerist bureaucrat, what happens? Mm. Which way does the spillover run? Mm. When? Mm. Why? Mm. What do citizens think? Do citizens mm. notice this? Mm. Do village leaders notice this? Mm. How? What is the feedback? Is the feedback necessary mm. for these mission-driven bureaucrats to sustain it? How do they maintain mission in a place where they are kind of isolated from a broader ministry and may may find a kind of frustrating local level experience. And so the idea is for this work, so I'm in Thailand this semester. Uh, in the spring, I'm moving to Senegal uh, to do some work, hopefully on decentralization there. And the idea is for these to come together with some projects in uh, Bangladesh and in my hometown of Detroit, uh, and maybe some uh, a few other emerging projects into uh, my next book uh, on mission-driven bureaucrats. Amazing. So I guess um, that's a roundup. So I guess you've got perspectives there from politicians, from bureaucracy and activism. And that's the sort of roundup of political science in 2019. Well, and uh, in, if we're moving to close, yes. let me just say, Alice, thank you so much for making the time to join <laughs> us here on Rocking Our Priors. Yes, this was wonderful, Alice. Come back again soon. Yes, please yeah. come back. <laughs> when you have new work, <laughs> do come back. <laughs> Rocking Our Priors. After we have seized it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both.